Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Firstly, doing a topic of changes in January. <laughs> that is like some, oh my God, major self-punishment going on here. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I am Annie McManus. Welcome to Changes. This is a place where we uncover stories of change. My guest today is Travis Alabanza. What a name uh, and what a person. Uh, Travis is a performance artist and a playwright, first and foremost. And Travis identifies as black, trans, feminine and gender non-conforming. They were born in Bristol and grew up in Hillfields, a council estate area outside of the city, with their mum and their brother. Travis has experienced all of the prejudice and abuse you could experience as a trans person, uh, but Travis has channeled all of that into their art in a really effective and impactful and powerful way. Their plays uh, talk about the lived experience of being trans. Uh, Burgers tells the story of Travis getting a burger thrown at them when they were walking across Waterloo Bridge and being called a tranny and how no one came to their aid. Uh, Their most recent play, Overflow, which has had huge ticket sales uh, at the Bush Theatre, is the story of a trans woman uh, kind of trapped in a toilet cubicle and it's a whole monologue from their perspective in there. Travis is also a person who is used to now achieving a lot of firsts, breaking a lot of boundaries. They're the youngest person to be awarded a residency at the Tate, the youngest ever leader of an artist-in-residence workshop at the Tate and the first black trans person to sell out a show at the Southbank Centre. Travis was awarded Future Fighter at the Gay Times Honours Awards and has had work featured at the V&A as well. We talk about all of their work in this conversation and the huge changes they've experienced in life from first starting to dress how they wanted to, uh, attending a summer camp in the US and learning about pronouns for the first time, dropping out of university to be an artist and becoming a trans voice in the art world. They're very charming, very funny. And I really enjoyed this conversation with them. Here's what happened when we Zoomed on a gloomy Thursday morning in January. Enter the podcast, Travis Alabanza. So, Travis, hello and welcome to Changes. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, It's great to have you. I'm really chuffed that you're here and I thank you for your time. How has time been for you uh, at the start of 2021? Well, I'm celebrating the 72nd day of January right now, so I feel all right. Um, I think that's how time's been going for me. Um, I quit smoking at the top of the year, as I do every year, and um, this feels like it's been the 700th day without a cigarette, so that's what time is like. How are you doing? Have you read that? Have you read that Alan Carr book? No, but I feel like what I'm doing is just every ex-smoker is telling me like sentences at a time when I tell them so instead of reading it everyone's just recommending it to me in chunks (laughs) okay I will stop doing what I was just about to do which is tell you my one line that I always carry no what is the line what is the line well it's basically about changing your perceptions of like of what cigarettes do for you so it's like instead of like them 
helping you or making you feel better. It's the idea of you being liberated from them. So it's like actually your whole way of thinking about them, like giving them up as a sacrifice, you need to switch it on your head and think actually giving them up is liberating me. I am now free of them. And it's just an interesting way. It's like, it's not anything about the physicality of it. It's just how we frame our minds to think about them. Really interesting. I think I'm going to have to get the book. Honestly, it really helped me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, well done to you, giving up fags, like at at this time of the year, like when there's nothing happening and we're in a global pandemic. It feels feels really silly and not congratulatory. And I feel (laughs) like I've lost my personality trait, basically. (laughs) This podcast is about change. Obviously, we've asked you um, to to think about a couple of questions before you come. And I wanted to, to get to the first change now. So talking about a change that you experienced, you know, early in your life, uh, what have you brought to us? Yeah, firstly, doing a topic of changes in January, <laughs> that is like some, oh my God, major self-punishment going on here. <laughs> Babe, I'm so sorry. But I love like, it. We, we, we launched this podcast basically in February of last year, like just as the world changed irrevocably, like it was like, did someone like, what the fuck? Like it it was so weird. So yeah, I'm sorry to hit you with that in January. No, I love it. I love it. But yeah, no, the change that I was thinking of um, the most really is that when I was about 14, 15, I decided to start wearing what I wanted to wear um, and clothes that I actually wanted to look like, which I'm, you know, at the time I was just growing my beard through and all these changes were happening in my body without my consent you know puberty all of this um I'm a mixed race kid from Bristol on a council estate at the time and I just suddenly decided to start wearing dresses and skirts and makeup and sequins and crop tops and really ghastly awful outfits that I adored and it was without a doubt the biggest change I think not even of my young life of my life today what was the catalyst for that change? Was there something you saw? Was there someone you saw that made you that made you want to do it? Or like, was there anything? Yeah. Oh my God, this is so cliche. But um, I was in a school panto. <laughs> love it, love it. And they wanted me to audition as like the prince. But there was like this witch character that I was like, she seems way more fun. And <sighs> I asked my drama teacher, I was like, hey, um, I pulled her aside. I was like, hey, do you think that like I could go for the role of of witch? And she was like, yeah. And so I went for it. Um, absolutely killed it, obviously. And then, um, <laughs> uh, Prince isn't really my bag, but like glamorous witch. I think I turned her into like, what did I call her? I called her like the Gaga witch. And she only sung like jazz versions of like Lady Gaga songs in the thing. It was very cliche. It was bad. It sounds incredible. I haven't came out at this point, but clearly I was just saying, right, I don't need to. <laughs> this is me coming out. Yeah, Which exactly. is that? Yeah. And I, and I, for that show, I had to, you know, wear a dress and outfit. I picked it all, you know, I picked all the outfit. And then it was, before we were doing the live showing, all the girls that were in our class were like, oh, the football boy, like the boys were coming to watch it. Right. And it didn't click. You know, I was in rehearsals, loving it with all the drama kids. And then it clicked, oh my God, people are going to see me. And I remember absolutely like freaking out, like panicking, not even being able to talk. And my teacher was like, what's up? You're like normally so confident. I was like, everyone's going to like laugh at me and I'm going to get bullied. I can't do it. And um, 
she was like, does it, does it feel good though? And I was like, oh my God, yeah, like I'm, I love this. And she goes, then you should do it. And I went out on stage and it was really interesting because at first, you know, there was definitely whispers, but then because the performance was funny and the performance was good and they were laughing like with me. And so I think it was that that made me then be like, realize, oh, this didn't just feel good because you were on stage. Like you enjoyed what these clothes made you feel like, you enjoyed yeah. expressing yourself. And you know, going out on the council estate was not the same reaction as that, but it was because <laughs> I'd had that first response, I could kind of build yeah. it in myself, you know? Yeah, and, and interesting that that took place, um, that kind of acceptance and validation of you being who you wanted to be took place on stage. And then you ended up carrying on a lot of your work being on stage. Yeah. Is there something in that, do you think, that is like oh, 100. the association? Yeah, Yeah, 100. I think that on stage you get to be the things that I think you're punished for in the streets, you know? And yeah. I soon realised that on the streets, all the things that I was being looked at and targeted for, grand gestures, my performativity, my, my gestures, all of that was a plus on the stage. And mm. so for me, it felt really natural to go to the stage because... I got to, people say you go on stage and then you pretend, you know, like I remember acting in my first show and everyone was like, oh, you're pretending. I was like, mm, maybe I'm actually being as honest as I can be that what you can't be when you're on the street. Do you know what I mean? Right. I think that honesty is yeah. reduced in the world. You know, like pe people go to underground bars and I remember first coming across like queer bars and queer clubs in London. And I think it really suits that. I wish they weren't all in basements, but it suited it. And I remember going down, I was like, oh, upstairs in the real world, people can't be this full of them. They can't be this full of self. And here you yeah. can, you know? Yeah. It's such an interesting flip, isn't it? The idea of pretense leaving that behind and walking onto the stage to be your truth. Yeah. Oh my God, I go on the yeah. tube. Well, I don't anymore. In the alternative life that we went on the tube <laughs> and I see those men in suits going to work. I'm like, they're pretending. They're yeah. The one, yeah, they're doing some show too, right? It's always the performance is put on us. But I look at them and, and then I'll see them in the clubs on the Friday night. You know, I'll see them at Saturday at the RVT and I'll be like, oh, you were playing the game too, you know? Um, I watched your TED, TED Talk. Travis Alabanza, listeners, has done an incredible TED Talk, which, which you should all go and watch. But I was really struck by how you really um, simplified your idea of trans at the start of what it means to be trans and, 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 and what it means to not be trans. Um, and, and you talked about the rules and, and, and consent. Would you mind <laughs> telling, telling us again? Because I just loved how you talked about it. Thank you. Um, God, that's a throwback, isn't it? What it feels like it is. But um, yeah, so I think that to understand trans, you've got to also understand cisgender, which is the opposite of trans. And, um, you know, at birth, everyone, whether you're trans or not, is assigned something without their consent, either male or female, based on looking at your external organs, um, or sometimes with intersex people deciding. Um, and then trans just means that in whatever shape or form, you don't feel like you are that thing that you were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. And cisgender just means that you are comfortable with what you were assigned at birth. And I think that's an easier way of doing it because it allows people to not have to then go, well, I'm not a man, so I'm a woman, or this. I just go, well, I know I'm not this boy thing that was told yeah. of me. And that's yeah. all you kind of need to know, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really simplified and really, like, straightforward explanation. I really liked it. Was there a moment for you, Travis, where when you realised you didn't want to follow 
those rules you didn't want to be assigned those rules of gender and can you remember it sometimes I think in these kind of questions you make up a response that's like super clear whereas like actually it's probably a load of moments that lead to something you know like maybe it was PE classes and being like this doesn't feel right or maybe it was when my beard first came through but none of those times I went aha and then started quoting Judith Butler and was ready to go but it was actually like uh I think a big moment for me was first seeing someone else that had said no like I went to oh my god I'm rolling out so many cliches in this interview you can tell I haven't you can tell <laughs> don't I haven't worry in a while. um <laughs> I went to California when I was 18 yeah um, interested in this yeah so I was like kind of I would say struggling with like more lots of my identities. I was, mm. you know, coming into maybe, I was always have to be racially conscious, but I was struggling with what being queer meant is in terms of exclusion in like the black circles I'd been in. And I also yeah. wasn't finding really solace in like the white people I knew. And I was just struggling and my brother could kind of see that I was struggling. And he was older than me and he said, look, there's this, this, this camp in America. And I was like, I'm not going to a freaking summer camp. He's like, no, 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 no. Like it's by this feminist called Mia McKenzie. Read some of her stuff. And I started reading her stuff. And I've always been into books from like a really young age. And she was this incredible theorist basically that was talking about black queer life. And she was saying, I've got this camp where I'm going to bring all these black queer people together so we can talk about things. And I was like, I can't go. And they were like, fundraise. And so I fundraised. It was really, it was why it was really scary. And looking back, I'm like, how that I think I was on such a tunnel to like find something and right. whatever. And I go there to this camp. And it's like not the cliches, but also the cliches. It's beautiful and not at the same time. And then they do a pronoun route circle where they say your pronouns. I go, what's a pronoun? And all right. these people were like, you don't know what a pronoun is. I was like, no, what is this? You know, I, I don't know all of this. And it's, mm. and this person was like, all oh, right, them, they. And I was like, what? And I, and I got it wrong. I misgendered them so many times, but I was just learning. And I was, and I, we finally yeah. chatted on the second week. I was like, can I ask, like, what is that? Like, what is going on? They were like, well, you know, gender and all these things. I was like, yeah. And they're like, I just opt out. I don't want to do it. And I was like, wait, what? And they were like, I what just don't want to do it. <laughs> I just was, love that. And I was shocked. I was like that. I was like, you can do that. And they were like, well, no, the world's still going to do it to you. But you can start internally with you. Does it make you feel more relaxed? Mm. And at first, obviously, like many things that you're afraid of, I ran from it. I was like, oh, cool. That's good for you. I respect that. And then I remember getting the plane home and just being like, oh, my God, all of my brain time before that was taken up with this question of what I am. But all of that was about man or woman and... I just suddenly relaxed when I was like, that doesn't have to be in my in my thing. There's so many things more interesting about me than what gender I'm deciding I am, you know? Yeah, yeah. What a freedom, like what a thing to learn at that really formative age when so you're young. in that place in your life of huge like transition, like hormonally, like physically, everything's changing. To have that door opened, wow. Yeah, it was, I look back and I'm so lucky I had it early on because it meant I could find other things about me that were not that. And I see, you know, easily I could have went into now still being weighed down by like all these things. And that's not to say I'm not still weighed down by sure. different things. Of course, it's not this rosy thing, you know, we're always still gendered. Just because you opt out mm. doesn't mean it's not there constantly to you. But mm. the key thing was that consent thing, right? Of like, 
learning that even if all, the, all these things were happening to me, I first have the choice to decide who I am for myself, mm. you know, and, and mm. that was the, a huge shift, you know. Mm. Yeah. And how did your family react then? How did your brother, I mean, it sounds amazing that your brother made you aware of this place in the first place. Yeah, my brother was really on it. I'm really lucky. Like, I only grew up with my mum and my brother in the house. Yeah. Um, and I'm lucky that I think they, because I made so many outward signs from an early age, I imagine what I hear is like they did all of their processing then. So by the right. time that I was coming round processing myself, they'd already done like what I imagine was the kind of readjustments. And so I kind of have only ever felt love and support from them. You know, it took time to get used to language and, you know, all those things. But for me, that stuff, always a second. You know, I know for some people language really matters and I understand why it does. Mm. But mm. for me, I'm about the feeling that I want from my family is far more important. And so, sure. yes, my mum might slip up on the terminology or the words or whatever. Mm. You know, I'm sure if we brought her to one of my like university lectures I go to or do or whatever, there'd be people writing down all the things she's done wrong. But yeah. to me, the feeling of support and love was always there from her. And that's more, way more important to me, you know. And do you think that has bolstered you to be able to, to be the person you are today? Yeah. Yeah, 100. That's what I think makes me emotional about what's going on in the UK right now for trans mm. people and trans youth and all these debates is because it's yeah. not a coincidence that I'm able to work, have a career, sit here talking to you. It's because I was lifted up rather than halted. I, my life wasn't put on hold for my changes, you know, like... I wasn't stopped from them, so I didn't have to do them now, you know? I was allowed to do it with everyone else changing and finding themselves. And so I think mm. that's what gets lost in this whole, you know, awful debate around trans kids and trans youth is that we're delaying their, like, start at life and at confidence, you know? Mm. Because I can imagine if you are in a state of suspension in that way where you know that you feel like you're in the wrong body and you want to be in a new body, but you're not able to proceed. Life, you're in purgatory of some yeah. sort, I can imagine. Yeah, you're in a graze. I was definitely in a muted space. That's what it is, like a muted space. You don't right. feel fully present at any time because mm. half of your thoughts are on something else, at least for me, you know, everyone's different. But, you know, I think from talking to a lot of my friends, it's that same thing. It kind of hazes your ability to connect. And so I think that's what we're holding. You know, people always talk, are so fixated on the physical aspects of transition when it comes to trans people. Right. But I often think that that's easy for people to fixate on that because then they can make it a spectacle. But what we're actually talking about is people being full persons, emotionally, mm. being able to find other things that aren't their transness. That can only happen mm. once we're comfortable with our transness, you know? Mm. Mm -hmm. Speaking about those arguments that are so loud and, and so prolific everywhere. And, you know, you have a, a number of women's names that crop up quite a lot, um, you know, radical, traditional feminists. Why do you think these people have a problem with with trans women in women's spaces? What is their problem with that? How long is a piece of string of the podcast? <laughs> you know, I think it's... I wish you could have seen Travis there. There's, it would be really good. I think it's complex, you know, and I can't speak for every person. I think some people come for it through different ways, you know. I think there's a lot of radicalisation happening online about lots mm. of topics 
a lot of polarization happening about lots of topics. I do think it stems from fear, which is valid, but I think it stems at a fear of violence that is real to women of all genders, cisgender women or trans women. But male violence and patriarchy is so much harder to hold. It's so much harder to tackle. It's so much harder to grasp. We would have to look at our bosses, our dads, our businesses, our structures, our banks, all these things that men run. So much easier, I think, to stamp out a small minority of people that trigger something in us, that remind us of something. So much easier to direct our hate there. I think that there's a confusion of like wanting to have control. I think that like so much of feminist history is about autonomy and consent. But also, also if we look at like when women fought for votes in both UK and US, part of that campaign was also saying which type of women could have that vote. You know, black women were sold, they couldn't. So there's a a long history of feminism pushing the rights of certain people and not other people, you know? And so I think this is another example of that. I think that the media has done an incredible job at swinging up fear in people and... I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of this started, like we saw an increase in these media tabloids the same time that Brexit was being campaigned and happening for. I think that it's a very clever distraction technique from governments and equality ministers to focus on a really small minority in the UK rather than look at the huge massive issues that are affecting all women, rather than look at domestic violence centres actually being shut down by a Tory government, Liz Truss blows up and says, let's debate the 1% being in these centres that we're shutting down. You know, I think it's really missing out the context of the wider things, you know, like, I just, I just wish the attention was directed elsewhere. Solidarity is always much more powerful than division. Mm. I like my friend Mary. Um, uh, we talk about it a lot and um, she's just like, just be sound. <laughs> It's just like, just be safe. Legit. Like, just, just be sound. Legit. Like, people are people. Just let people just be who they want to be. Like, it's, it's literally that simple. Like, it, it, it feels like when she kind of dumbs it down in that way, but it is kind of quite profound. It is a lot of people fighting to be themselves and to have, as you say, autonomy in who they are. And it, there's a sadness to it that there's so much fighting and, and people feel so threatened by it, right? It's so sad because then you don't get to enjoy the joy that's brought by like meeting different kinds of people, you know? Right. I think that that is what is tough, is my experience of trans people in my life is that creativity, funny, joyful, like energy, like it's positive. Yeah. And then yeah. everything public is a debate. And I'm like, this is so boring. We could definitely move on to something else, you know? Let's talk about you and and when you your second change because that's a lovely time to go to that which feels like a really positive and joyful time in your life. Um, yeah. When you went to uni yeah, and dropped oh out of uni. Well, my my brief cameo at university. <laughs> I love that cameo. <laughs> yeah, I did a brief appearance there. <laughs> yeah, my brief cameo at university. I, I moved to London. It was the only option for me. Like I knew, and I was kind of uni- using university and the maintenance grant to be able to explore London. That was over it. Like I never had dreams of like uni. It was more, how do I get money to get to London? Yeah. Um, 
max out the maintenance grant and the student loan. Um, yeah. And I was at King's and I hated it really. Like I hated the university aspect, but also I was loving London. I'd found like queer clubs for the first time. I'd found like queer performers. I was going on stage a bit just on the weekend and I absolutely loved it. But yeah. then I had this degree kind of holding me back. And in my family, like a lot of working class families, I think that you've got to work really hard to get out of it. And so my mum had instilled with us from a young age, I don't care what you do, but you have to go to school and then you have to get a job. Mm-hmm. And being an artist did not count as that, you know? So I didn't really know what it was. But I remember doing a show at the RVT, my first like headline show where it was me and it was like packed and loads of people and everyone was being like, when's your next show? And I was like, oh no, I've got my exams. And they were like, what? Why are you doing exams? Like, you, this is what you should be doing. This is what you should be doing. And um, yeah. I was like, hmm, hmm, no. And I rang my mum up and I was like, what would you feel if, you know, I took a break from university? And my mum's someone that always supports me, always says yes. And she goes, absolutely not. And it was the first wow. time she'd ever like said no. I rang my brother. Yeah. He was like, that would be the biggest mistake you could do. And it was really clear from like family members that have never done that. I remember being like outside the library at King's, watching all these people go past, being absolutely miserable, also knowing I was going to fail my exam too. And then just going, fuck it, like, I'm going to quit. Like, I don't want to do this, I'm going to quit. And that for me was a huge shift and a huge change because again, it's about like doing what you want for you. And Mm. You know, my family were really disappointed. I remember like them saying, we can't lie, we're really disappointed. That must have been scary for you to feel like you you, you yeah. kind of, yeah, gone against their wishes in that way. Absolutely, especially because like, I think my mum had worked so hard on her own to sure, make sure yeah. that her kids wouldn't be in the state that we were in growing up of wealth and all of this, like not having it. And she saw, you know, going to university is the way to get money, basically. And then when I go, not only am I dropping out, she goes to do what? I go to be a performer in clubs. <laughs> she, goes, <laughs> she goes, how much are you getting paid for your last club gig? I go, that's not important. It's not what I could get paid. And she was like, she was like, is it, is it triple figures? I was like, absolutely not. It's not triple figures. You know, it's £40 and then I spend it on the drinks. But I wasn't telling yeah. her this. I was like, well, I'm yeah. investing. I'm investing what I get into costume, into outfits, you know. And she just didn't get it, you know. She's, you know, She only really understood my job about a year ago, to be honest. It was really scary. But I told my mum and my brother that I was never going back. But actually what I did, which is like the less badass story, is that... Yeah. I technically went on a year break, but I told everyone I was quitting. Right. But I said So you the, had that safety net if you needed yeah. it. Yeah. And I wrote Sensible. in my diary, I said, if I don't, if I can't pay rent in a year, then you've got to go back. Yeah. But I told all my family and everyone that I'd quit. Yeah. But I told my tutor at the time, who already was, when I turned up, I remember turning up to my tutor to tell them I was quitting uni. And I'm like, I haven't seen you all year. I had assumed you already left. <laughs> <laughs> Standard. <laughs> So what was happening? So you, you mentioned kind of headlining a show at the RVT. What is the RVT? Is it the Royal Victoria? Royal Vauxhall Tavern, yeah. Royal is... Vauxhall Tavern, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you're headlining shows. And what are you doing in those shows? And what age are you at this point? Like 19 or something? 20. 20. 20. Okay. Who, good question on what I'm doing in those shows. Still don't really know. <laughs> um, you know, 
I don't know what I was, I really don't know what I was doing, but like, I guess political commentary, but using So like, it's you alone, Just monologues. me alone, and yeah, I'd use yeah. these like, it was weird shit. It was like, milk had made a resurgence in the performance art kind of space and club. So everyone yeah. was pouring milk on everything. And so it was yeah. kind of that kind of stuff, you know, I was pouring milk on myself, using projections, chatting about shit. At that time, I was uh, using grinder conversations that I'd had with people online. Amazing. And I'd been print screening all the times they'd been like racist or horrible da, oh, da, da, right. and using that to make like comedic text or shows or whatever. Right. Looking back on it, I cringe, but at the time it was like, felt good or whatever. I don't know, I was finding yeah. myself, you know, and people just really liked it. I think that even though it wasn't long ago in time, you know, I'm a baby, I'm young, but like, I think we think because of what we're looking at now in terms of diversity and stuff that that must have been happening for ages. But even six, seven years ago on the scene, you mm. wouldn't really get a black queer person on a lineup in the RBT often at all. Wow. And you wouldn't really get more than one of us. And so when I first hosted the RBT, I made all of my support acts also black. And it was the kind of Amazing. first kind of time they were having a whole black takeover for the whole month. And I remember turning up on the first Tuesday and I'd booked like a queer rapper. I'd booked like Carnage, who's amazing. Sorry, should shout him out. Should check him out now. He's incredible. I okay. booked like a black drag queen, a black like circus act. And the RVT were a bit, a bit nervous, I think, you know, but supportive. Yeah. All these cues out the door, full of all these wow. people that had never came to the RVT before. All these different black queer people coming because yeah. they'd heard that was the show. And that kind of momentum, I think, helped me be like, oh, I've got something, a point of view here that is being valued way more than in this classroom across the bridge, you know. Mm, mm, mm. And and let's talk about the kind of bridge then from doing these shows at the RVT to then becoming a resident at the Tate, like moving into this kind of high-end art space and how that happens. I heard you on another interview and I thought it, it was really interesting, the language of art and how you talked about that and the perception of what art is and what art isn't. How did you end up doing, you know, grinder text yeah. to then being, the, you know, the resident of the tape, which is all art, obviously, but how did you make that transition? A lot of vodka shots probably somewhere in a drink <laughs> application. No, you know, that was a weird one. And that came at the right time because I said I needed salary and that job gave me a salary. And so right. it meant, and it would happened the month before I was meant to have earned enough rent to stay as an artist. And so I'm always thankful for that moment. It came because actually people looking out for me. I think I've given a different answer before why I put it on me. But actually reflecting, it was from people sharing their resources. Um, right. An artist called Linda Stupart, who's like a gallery, more like fine artist, right? I just mm -hmm. knew Linda as someone that came to the RVT and liked my stuff. Said, um, oh, I was a resident at the Tate. I should put you forward to apply for it. I went, absolutely, what? <laughs> like, no. And they were like, no, you'd be really good at it. And I was like, I make stuff on clubs. And they were like, yeah, they need that. And they sat down, they applied for me. They helped me put in like a good application. Wow. I think that sometimes, unfortunately, what it takes is someone from somewhere else opening doors for you and saying, you know, Linda was like, I'm a university educated, posh white person that knew I could always do art. When I hear you speak, I don't think you realize you're doing art. And it's, and they were right. Like I wasn't calling myself an artist at this point. I didn't, I remember for the application for the Tate, it was the first time I had to like call myself an artist. Yeah. And I was like, 
oh, this feels horrible. And they were like, <laughs> you know, they were like, what's up? I'll never forget. They said, describe your practice. And I said, what the fuck is a practice? I said, what does that, I'm not practicing anything. Like, what are you doing? And can you tell us what it is? Like, well, I'd yeah, like exactly. It's horrible, isn't it? It's, it's loofy, isn't it? They mean, what is your work, basically? That's what I want. Like, what right. do you do? Like, it's like, yeah. What? And how did you narrow that down into like a short paragraph? Like I made up loads of shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I think that's a lot of it. Though, yeah, isn't it? it's it kind of like bullshit. how you speak around it. Yeah, yeah. I bullshit. I would never speak about my practice like that now. But I looked mm. and I saw the words and I was like, I can do that. And I just mm. made up crap. Now I, I I don't bother with that. But I think that's because I had to learn. You know, I opted in and then went. Oh, actually, what I was doing before felt good. Yeah, but going through that kind of world, seeing how people talk about it, I'm like, I want my mum to be able to read what I'm doing, and to go, okay, cool, and I don't need to hide it and all this other stuff, you know. But at the time, I was happy to be on paye, you know. <laughs> yeah, and 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 your mum must have been gassed at that this job. I mean, what a job to tell your mum you got, no? Nah? She was, well, maybe the salary? Was she, was she, she excited was about the salary? still a bit hung up on me being an artist at this point. I can't yeah. lie. Um, yeah. she, she was happy, but I think she was still, she was cautious, you know? She still, she still, you know, it was funny. I, she came up to watch me like a year later in, I was playing Amal Nitrate in the remake of Derek Jarman's Jubilee, right. the theatrical show. And I thought, this is going to be, my face was on posters, amazing reviews. I was like, this is going to be the moment where she goes, maybe my kid is like doing it. And she still said at the end of the conversation, she goes, so are you planning to go back eventually? Like, is this a, is this? <laughs> and I said, I was like, mum, that ship has sailed. Um, yeah. But she's all right now. I did a show in Bristol Burgers last year. And, and did she like that? She loved it. And she oh, came. Good. And she saw everyone's reaction and she saw like the book and people like mm. coming and traveling from different, and she turned and she goes, oh, I'm really proud of you. And I was like, thank you, mum. And she goes, I don't think I really understood it, but this is like proper, isn't it? And I was like, yeah, I think this is a bit proper now. And she was oh, like, yeah. Travis. Yeah, it was really, it was really special having her at the show. It was like beautiful actually. And I was I'm so nervous. And my director yeah. was like, never seen you this nervous I was like it's my mum like I'll be able to tell she doesn't hide a thing you know she's a very strong loud confident black woman she don't Mm. hide when something's bad when I look bad and she was so positive and then it paused and she goes I would change the shoes though (laughs) that I can do that I can do exactly yeah yeah. (laughs) and you know obviously you were going to end up with all of your mom's you know, being so influenced by your mom, being a grafter and a worker, and you just did it your way, like. Exactly, yeah. and that's what I try. She can see it now, you know, especially now I'm in a place where, you know, I can support my mom, which is, I think, a dream for most, any yeah. child, but especially single parent families, you know, I think you really see your mom hustle when it's just like, people go, oh, you, you work in this and this. I think some people, you just know that grafting's the only option, whether that's yeah. working in a shop or a cafe, or whatever. And I think that we've made up this lie that art is only allowed to be for these certain types of people. Mm. And no, no, like nothing like that, you know? Mm. None of that, you know? So yeah, it is grafting.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So Burgers, your show that you mentioned, um, a huge success for you and ended up being in, in, in South Bank Centre, am I right yeah. in saying that? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, like when, when you read about you, again, you know this already, but listeners won't, it, there's a lot of firsts. There's a lot of, you know, Travis Alabanza, you know, doing the first, being the first, you know, black trans artist to be in the South Bank Centre, you know, all of this stuff. How was like, I've got so many questions about burgers, but how, how, like looking back at it now, having time to reflect, how important was that for you in terms of your journey, that whole experience? Oh my God. Undescribable, like joy from pain moment. And even with the first thing, like I don't, I get kind of weird when people say that because I don't think there's any way to know. I don't, I'm not interested in first and all. Yeah, yeah, it's it's healthy to not get too deep in that stuff. I get that. But I think for me, burgers were so important because it was my first time where I paused from the club work. So I was like always doing 10 minute gigs, 10 minute slots, walking around doing seven shows a night, going different tricks in London, you know, getting... My fee went from 40 quid to 90 quid, you know, like moving around, but yeah. still hustling. And yeah. I could see that my work was trying to go somewhere else. And Burgers was great because someone gave me time to sit and write rather than constantly having to be make sure. things for a club. Actually pause. What does it look like to take up a longer amount of space? Learning that your stories don't just have to be, they can be in the underground, they can be in that, but they can also not be if you don't want to be, you know? Mm. And um, at this point, you know, I'm going around London looking as I do, gender non-conforming, and part of what I was really having to come to terms with of how unsafe that was, you know, how unsafe it was to be walking outside. And I was so upset that me and a lot of my friends that were in the clubs would then have really hard daytimes looking like we do in the clubs at night going to the day. So I knew I wanted to talk about that. I knew I wanted to make a show that was documenting that. And I thought, well, this burger did get thrown at me. It feels like a event that is staying with me emotionally. How do I turn it into something? And then it actually came about because I can't, I couldn't cook at the time. And so I was like, well, if I'm going to do this show, I also need to gain something. So I'm going to learn how to cook. So that's how I like, was like, I'm going to make a burger on stage and talk about this stuff. Um, and, you know, yeah, it did change. It did change my life. Not if, not even career, well, I don't, that stuff, whatever, it changed my life because it was the first moment where I'd done jobs before, I'd been in acting stuff, but it was the first time when I went, I'm actually all right at this. 
I, I can do this. I, and I'm not more than that. I'm having fun. Mm. And I remember being like, this is what I want to do, you know? Mm. And the, like the, the very kind of physical act of, you know, making a burger on stage, but also reliving this experience that was painful for you. Um, of having someone having throwing a burger at you on London Bridge, uh, Waterloo Bridge, sorry, and then the kind of impending uh, silence afterwards, and the lack of reaction, the lack of help and support you got from the passers-by at the time. Like, how was that? I was thinking about that when watching the clip of burgers, like again and again, having to relive that and explain to people how you feel and how they didn't react and how violence is silence, like you said. Does that? How does that affect you? Yeah. The show was kind of um, made in this, like, I always described it as like this kind of box that opens, like the, a box physically opens at the beginning, I come out of a big box, and then that box closes. The way the show was structured, it kind of did that. At the beginning, it's a lot of opening. But I mean, spoiler alert, but I mean, it's probably not going to be back for a while, is because I invite a white cisgender man every night on stage from the audience to help me make the burger, the show very quickly becomes less about me and all about him. The man does so much more emotional work in that show than I do. Right. And also the bits that become tough because the show ends with recreating that act and hoping that someone from the audience will stop it. And 99% of the time, an audience member's come and stop the burger then being thrown. It means that I get to see in front of me what I didn't get to see on Waterloo Bridge. And the audience get to see that too. So they get to see what standing up for someone looks like. And for me, and the audience, that's a really powerful moment. And I think that's why so many of us, I don't cry in the show, but sometimes I do. Sometimes I'll see it happen. Like sometimes there'll be a time when a man I've really connected with will be asked about throwing the burger and I'll think, oh my God, maybe this is the time where no one's gonna stop. And then you see this person that's been very uncomfortable at the beginning of the show stand up and go, actually, no, 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 this isn't right. And then I just am like, how real is, that's not theatre anymore, this is, this is real. And I can go through the pain every night because at the end of the show, I know I'm about to get what I don't get in the streets. It comes back to what I said earlier, you know, going on stage to do the honest stuff, not to do God, the fake stuff. It's mad, isn't it? So you've taken something that's happened to you and you're turning it around night after night after night. Not like, that's... Yeah, we made a lot of burgers. <laughs> um, vegans didn't love my show and I did I just want to say I've never said but I've been thinking about this of course we did try and do a vegetarian you do a veggie burger. burger yeah yeah we did try but it just when it could does cooks, it not throw as well yeah it doesn't throw <laughs> as well it doesn't look as good it doesn't stink out the room like part of it when I was doing the small rooms before we were in like you know the South Bank or yeah, whatever yeah. in the box rooms it, all, everyone stunk of me and I loved it you leave and I was like this is great at that time yeah. my only like audience with all these queer lefties and I was like you're all leaving smelling of meat perfect <laughs> you hate me right <laughs> now you know how I felt <laughs> yeah. yeah so that's burgers and then overflow you know that that's you know again first time like looking looking you up beyond like seeing you on social media you are a playwright yeah don't troll me like that, Annie. Stop trolling me out. No, I'm not. You're a playwright no, now. Don't. I was just building street cred throughout all of this. Don't do something dirty like that. <laughs> but it's real proper, like, bush theatre, like, big theatres, you know. And no. I was gutted for you when, obviously, lockdown happened and, and, and that had to stop. It's going online now, right? It's going to be streaming really soon. Yeah, next week. I find it hard on, to reflect on things when I'm, I'm still kind of in it with Overflow. Yeah. But, um... 
Yeah, it was my first time doing something where I'm not on stage. So I'm writing it for someone else. So I guess mm. they start calling me a playwright. And yeah, I guess it is. It's a play. It's a it's a bloody play. Yeah. Uh, Overflow is, a you know, it's set in a woman's bathroom. And it's about a trans woman that is trapped in a woman's bathroom. And she uses the time that she's trapped to look over her whole life in toilets. And so she traces through her life in toilets. And what for me, again, it was about, you know, they've got the newspaper columns. They've got all these places they can be loud. But where can we speak back? And actually, it's I think people come thinking it's going to be a debate. And actually, what Overflow is for me, is an ode to club toilets. It's an ode to, like, the makeup lessons you learn at toilets. There's an ode to festival toilets. You know, for me, it's about all the other things that make up this person's life. Mm. Why is now she being stopped from entering this space? And so what I loved about Overflow is I'm always surprised by something when things come out, is that, yes, it was about the trans debate, but so many people were just talking about how it made them miss clubbing, how it made them miss festivals. My friends came to see it, and they said, oh, this is the first show I've seen of yours that feels like not just the you that is really smart and talks all these things, but the you that I know from Glastonbury back when you were 15. And yeah. I was like, yes, right, I miss I miss raves. That's what this is about. <laughs> that was what this was. <laughs> so Overflow is kind of that. And is, is there like an intention on your part to have the audiences feel a certain way when they leave Overflow? Yeah, definitely. I want them to feel joyful I think people leave feeling joyful and empowered. Whereas a lot of my work, challenge is like the first thing I think of. With this, actually, I think I didn't, I wanted to leave something on a high note because of the year we'd had and everything. But I think, Mm. I think Overflow feels a bit punk, actually. It feels like a bit of like a, and punk feels like something that bridges lots of differences together, but without talking Mm. about it as much. It just does it. So that's what I think of Overflow. Yeah. Yeah, I read the whole script last night and, and I absolutely loved it. And I can't oh my God, wait they to sent see you the it. script. They sent me the script. Is that allowed? No, that just makes me yeah. nervous. <laughs> well, you're a playwright now. That's, you know, people read scripts. That's, That's what no, they do I read with the it. Whole thing. Yeah, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So. I wanted to ask you about, you know, representation, because it strikes me that you are someone who is a, you know, a positive force for the trans community. You're someone who is out there doing it, as you say, talking about the challenges of being trans, but also just talking about the joyful things about being trans as well. Do you feel that? Do you feel that you are a voice now? I mean, you're only bleeding, what, 25? Like, you know, it's a big responsibility to take on. But have you felt that, you know, in the last few years as your voice has become louder? Not louder, more heard. Do you know what, I re- I'm, this is being real, this pause has really helped me readjust my relationship to that. Yeah. Um, because yeah. I think it can be quite, te- I find it quite terrifying, actually, if I'm honest. Um, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, I think there's so many trans people that I know, but there is so few of us that have access to certain things. And that's dependent on, like I said, family support, or it's dependent on how we speak, how we put ourselves across, our shade, all these different things that have meant that I'm in the situation I'm in. And I think when you're from a community that doesn't have a lot of access, you know, trans people, particularly trans people of colour, some of the most highest rates of unemployment, highest rates of homelessness, all these different things. Mm. I think it can be a lot of pressure then when you suddenly appear to the world of having beat whatever that is. Even though obviously internally in your life, you know that you're walking outside, you're still getting crap on the street, you know that you're still having to manage all these things. And so it used to exhaust me a lot trying to please everyone 
and trying to be like, okay, I need to be constantly thankful, constantly grateful and constantly in service, I think. Mm. And then I kind of, I did a bit of a dive for all the things I've ever said publicly. And I said, oh, I've actually never called myself an activist. And I've actually never called Mm. myself a visibility. I've never used these words. This was- That's other people putting those words on you. Right. I've just made work and that was projected onto it. And I said, oh, I don't know if I need to hold as much. So I, I don't know about that question yet. I think I'm, that's one that I'm, is like a live one. Yeah, and it's probably, it's probably not a, a comfortable thing to think about. It, you know, to have to think about your place in a, in a community and, and how you're thought of and how you're perceived is not necessarily a comfortable thing to think about, is it? And I think we So all, my bad. <laughs> no, 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 not at all that. But I think, you know, everyone deals with it in different ways. I mean, I don't need to tell you what it means to have different variations of public perception, you know? It, it's... Yeah. It's, and you know, I'm receiving it on a smaller scale, but a concentrated scale because there is so few of us in public. Mm. But all I try and remember is that's not what you're doing it for. That's not, that wasn't a thing that you thought about. What is the thing that you actually care about? I care about making good work and I care about making more jobs for us so that more people are making good work that look Mm. like me and don't look like me, just all different types of trans people. So if I continue with that, then the side effect of that will also be I'll be less pressure because there'll be more of us making jobs you know that's why I said I didn't want to the first thing when I submitted the script for overflow they were like oh we guess you'll be in it and I went oh no they went why I was like we've seen me in a show let's you know that's why we did an open call for overflow because we wanted to get we got people that were mums people that had just gotten out of prison all these different kinds of people auditioning Mm. and I said great now here's a huge list of people for when we want to cast our next show Nothing's ever healthy when it's on one person in any aspect of life. Nothing's healthy on, we shouldn't be putting people on podiums because then people Mm. just fall. Mm. Why are we like looking up to people and instead just flattening it all out, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about the third change. The thing that you would most like to change. What was my favorite change? In your life or the world moving forward. So you talked about social media. Oh God, did I? What, I was probably having a day you, when I... You, you, yeah, you, you basically said <clears throat> something along the lines of like trying to not be so tied to social media, I think. Yeah, I think that time. sounds like me. Yeah? Yeah. What's your, what's your relationship with social media? It's so conflicted. So I feel shame sometimes with, with, with how I can be reliant on social media, on dopamine, on likes. And I've really fought hard to like put my phone in a drawer recently, not take it to my bedroom um, at the weekends, put it away. But it's constant. It's constant. It's the thing me and my partner argue the very most about. Get oh, off really? your phone. Get off your phone. My kids get off, tell us to get off our phones. That's a fucking shameful situation. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's hard. I mean, they're addictive things. And, you know, it, I think everyone goes through that. So, yeah, I think. Yeah. 100. I think that, like, I am just wanting out from it for now. You know, I want to build a way where I'm not as reliant on it. I think that because I didn't go to art school and because I was not in those clubs, those places, I built a social media following to convince theatres and audiences to book me. So a lot of the times in my first kind of gigs, when I did a Europe, I did a tour around Europe and it looked from the outside really big. This was like three or four years ago because it was all these popular venues. But actually it was because I put out on my social media, if you want me in your city, go and hound your venue to have me. And right. so 
that's how I got gigs at the early days. So I used to be really reliant on it in a. I yeah, so it was strategy. It was yeah. strategy. Yeah, I was like, the art world's not going to pay attention to me, so I need to build my audience first so that then they listen. Yeah. But I think what that's created with me is this like tether that I like feel mm. really heavily like I need to be there all the time, and I think. I've never spent this much time on a screen as we all have, you know, probably in this last right. year. And without all the other aspects of my life that we normally have, you know, friends, going out, like audiences, like real life people, all I'm doing online is comparing myself all day. Mm. And that's... Poisonous. Poisonous and never fruitful for you or the person no. you're comparing yourself to. No. You build all these projections up of these people that you're looking at and I could see it was happening because I remember like looking at a, a specific account and making this really not healthy comparison. Then I paused and went, wait, you know them. You know that this isn't true, what you're saying. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, whoa, social media made me forget that I actually knew who this person was. I want to limit the amount of projections placed on me, but also I want to stop projecting so much onto other people that I don't know. We don't know, the, we don't know each other, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's a very, very... Um relatable thing to want to do in 2021 I think a lot of people feel the same I have this theory that like in 10 years we'll have like people who are off-grid consultants who you pay to basically take you totally off-grid and it will be the thing to be off-grid oh my god I'm, I'm hoping so I'm hoping we all go back to the newsletter that's it yeah <laughs> that's yeah. it that is it love a newsletter <laughs> simple emails yeah, perfect exactly um, Travis, so looking forward to 2021, obviously you're in the middle of overflow. Is there things with this re reflection that you've had that you are kind of, that are kind of simmering in your brain, things that you want to express, things that you want to write about and create through your art? Yeah, um, definitely. And this interview brought it out more. I'm definitely wanting to, I've moved back to my hometown, Bristol during this. No way. Yeah. And I'm like five minutes away from my mum for the first time in like seven years. And so we've been hanging out loads, going on walks and stuff. I think that there's something to write about with her, with my mum. I want to bring my mum into it. And uh, I'm all about unconventional people on the stage. Single mums. I've been thinking a lot about single mums. And mm. especially with what we've seen in the news, like recently with the food, that was really like a tough watch oh. for so many of us. And so much empathy to people, but also just a remembrance of like when that was your life. That's what I've been thinking about a lot like changes in that way you know like mm. I think about my mum a lot maybe just because of this interview mm. I feel like she came well, up a lot in it you know she sounds like an incredible person <laughs> um, listen Travis thank you so much I really appreciate your generosity and your time I, I really it's been such a lovely conversation yeah it's been nice Thank you so much to Travis. Uh, what a wonderful person. What a deeply intelligent person. And I loved especially what Travis had to say with regards to the idea of acting and how when they initially stepped on the stage, all pretense was gone and their true self was able to come out. I love that kind of beautiful contradiction. And then what Travis spoke about with kind of all those people who are supposed to be living their truths, uh, going to their jobs every day in their suits or whatever, actually them being the actors 
and living the lies are so interesting so yeah let us know what you thought of Travis share the podcast far and wide please anyone who you know who might be interested in that who would benefit from learning about the trans experience from someone who lives that experience every single day thank you for all of your comments on Bez and of course on Larch Maxi from last week as well such big reactions to both of those uh, for different reasons and yeah if you're a fan of changes please don't forget to rate review and subscribe I will be back next Monday with award-winning author and general all-round brilliant woman Candice Carty-Williams, a darling of the literary world, has written one of the most exciting and talked about books of the last couple of years and has a new one to talk about as well. So Candice Carty-Williams on the show next week. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Louise Mason with research from Leila Simone Springer through Rethink Audio. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.